You may be seated. It's in suffering, pain, hurt, and heartache that we feel overcome and unable to see beyond the pain and ugliness of this world. We become salty, to use a familiar Navy term, jaded and bitter. Even in our sleep, the pain that cannot be forgotten falls drop by drop upon the heart against the will until comes wisdom to the awful grace of God. These are the words of Aeschylus, 6th century B.C., the Greek philosopher. And how true are these words? I know that many of you are familiar with pain and suffering. I know that this church has experienced an immense amount of difficulty over the past couple years with all the change. But are you familiar with the significance and the utility of suffering for Christ's sake? This will be our theme as we consider the epistle reading this morning. The scene that is before us is one of great depth and meaning that sums up the Christian life. It has to do with suffering, patience, endurance, and maturing for the glory of Christ. It illustrates that the previous chapter has present significance. That Christians are like athletes competing for a prize and running a race. That the stadium that surrounds the believers is filled with this great cloud of witnesses who have already run this race. And that Christ is the supreme example, founder, and perfecter in running this race of faith. There's great wisdom to garner from this passage. So we would do well to pay attention and to ask our Heavenly Father to open up our ears and hearts and minds so that we might receive His truth for us today. And so I invite you to open up your Bibles if you have them or your order of service and look with me at Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 to 14. But before we get started, let us pray. Merciful and tender loving Father, keep us by rekindling our hearts and our minds with love for you so that in patient endurance we may rest in you as your sons and daughters. Amen. So where are we? What are we doing? Who are we looking to? First, let us consider what we are not doing. We're not idle spectators, unconcerned strollers, or casual participants, but trained athletes contesting for a prize, a goal, a perfection. You see, the goal is more than a wreath or a medal but nothing less than Christ Himself, His presence, His likeness. This goal is this classical Greek notion of maturity, of becoming, of being. Perhaps akin to what Aristotle calls the magnanimity or greatness of soul. 
And if the prize or goal is raised, as I've just described, then so also is everything else. Our training, our competing, our striving, and our suffering is that much more significant. So where are we? What are we doing? If you be a follower of Christ, then you must be contesting, fighting, and running this race. God's race for us is not finished. Do not lose heart. You must not presume to know the results, but simply run with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You must remember those words to not feast on the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And recall those blessed promises from our Lord where he says that he will grant to those who conquer to eat on the tree of life. So let us put our trust not in ourselves, but in Christ. Let us not give up in running this race. So I ask you, and I ask myself, all of us, are we running the race? Are we competing for the prize? Are we any nearer to our destination? Now notice, we are not to look at the weights or the burdens of sin that cling so closely, but to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. It was the joy of Christ that caused him to endure and to suffer such agony. Joy in what? The joy of the blessed union with the Father and Holy Spirit and His beloved church. Christ's love for you drove Him to such great lengths. And so we are to lay aside every weight and sin that clings so closely. No one can mature in holiness weighed down. No one would try to climb Mount Everest with a grand piano. We must lighten our load. We must cast off those weights as we race on, as we look to, and as we learn from our Lord Jesus Christ. So look to Him. Gaze upon Him. The bronze serpent restored the wandering Israelites in the wilderness when they looked to it. And Christ restores and strengthens those who look to Him in running this race of faith. Look to Him. Let His superior example and presence make you strong. He is the goal, the journey, and companion. He is the truth, the way, and the life. So that you may victoriously fight and contest and finish this race. Now look with me at verses 3 to 11. How are we to run? We're not to run in our own effort so that we may grow weary or faint-hearted. We are not to run as athletes who contend by and for themselves. Our struggles against sin must be undergirded by Christ and His glorious work. If we wish to not grow weary or lose heart, then we must remember these three things from our text. 
first and most importantly. We must remember our Lord. Look at verse 3. Consider Him who endured from sinners such hostility against Himself. We must look to Him. Consider Him. Study Him. Learn from Him. Second, we must remember those witnesses who are both examples of the faith and fans of the faithful runners. Look at verse 4. We must be mindful of who we are surrounded by. Some of those who resisted, it says, to the point of the shedding of their blood. They have given much, and we can too. How encouraging it is to take a step back and see that this is not just us running this race. We are surrounded by these saints and these martyrs who have given so much, so we too can surely give. As they do, as they have. And lastly, we must remember our Lord's promises for us. Look at verses 5 and 6. We are beloved sons and daughters who suffer not because of gloom, doom, and despair, but because of the glorious loving kindness of the Father. You see how Christ redefines our situation? So let us cheerfully bear trouble and affliction when it comes. Why? Because the saints give witness through the Holy Spirit that we can bear it. Christ gives power, love, and good reason that we should. And our Heavenly Father gives promise that the pains of this present time are in fact His tender, redeeming love for us. No life can have any value apart from discipline. And it's no different for the Christian life. Verse 7 states that it is for discipline that we have to endure. Years ago, I took my nephew to Naval Special Warfare Command in Coronado, California. And after giving him a glimpse into what it takes to become a SEAL, I asked him the question, what is greatness? And through the course of our conversation, we recognize that greatness is steadfastness. Patience, perseverance, endurance. And we see this same principle vividly in our text. We see that it is through our patient endurance that we suffer and experience the Lord's discipline for us. And it's through this discipline that we mature into God's likeness, greatness, holiness, and righteousness. We mature. We experience that goal. We become in the likeness of our Lord. Christians from every generation have gained immense worth in suffering for Christ's sake. It is not in vain. They've gained immense worth in patiently enduring So let us not deprive ourselves of suffering for Christ's sake. The Apostle Peter tells us not to be surprised when when suffer comes our way, but that we ought to rejoice, he says. For it is by suffering for Christ's sake that we share in Christ's suffering. 
Such mystery, so profound. We are joined to Christ. And so we can count it all joy when we fall into these various trials. Because the testing of our faith produces steadfastness. And steadfastness may have its full effect that we may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. This is part of our maturing in the faith. Maturing in holiness. We must not forget the significance of being sons and daughters in this great race. A legitimate and loving father always disciplines his child. It would not be the mark of a father's love to let his child do what he likes. But a father who does discipline his son, or excuse me, a father who does not discipline his son, should that he neither loves nor is responsible for his son. In this case, his son is as good as illegitimate. But a father who does discipline his son shows deep, unwavering commitment to the child and the child's future hope. Brothers and sisters, the father's discipline is a sign of his love and our legitimacy. Do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by it, for the Lord disciplines the ones He loves and chastises every son whom He receives. His discipline is a sign of His love and our legitimacy. The College for the Visitation of the Sick and the 1662 prayer book demonstrates this same belief as it describes one's illness to be fatherly visitation. A fatherly visitation. It is even in our sufferings that God visits us. So how is the Father visiting you? If you know His, the, if you know his fatherly discipline, then be assured that you are in His care and you will surely conquer. But if you are unacquainted and oblivious to His chastisement, then you have reason to fear. Turn to Him. Open your arms to receive Him, even if it is painful. You are in a good place when you are in the Father's hands. It is by discipline that we are made to endure and strengthened in maturity. Hebrews 2.10 states that the Almighty should make the founder of our salvation perfect through suffering. How profound. Christ matured in holiness. In Hebrews 5, 8 to 9, we are told something similar. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. My point is this. This path of maturity and completion was for Christ. And it is for us too. Yes, we are to look to him. And we are to learn from Him. We are to imitate Him. 
He is the author and the perfecter and the example of our faith. Learned obedience through what He suffered. And so, we must do the same. Why? Because the Heavenly Father loves those who He disciplines. If we suffer for Christ's sake, we are lovingly disciplined. And if we are lovingly disciplined, we endure and mature in holiness. You see, suffering is an essential part to Christian living. Though an evil and ungodly reality, the sovereign and wise God uses it for His glory and for our enjoyment. Yes, because we must be able to see beyond the ugliness of this world and look to the beauty that lies ahead. It was for the joy that was set before Him that He endured the cross. So let us patiently endure. Let us mature in holiness. Like athletes who undergo stress, training, and discipline, so must, the, so must present-day believers. Like athletes who perform before an audience, so must Christians. Let us endure patiently that we might enjoy forever. We must act with double intensity, you see. We must act in double intensity in our effort as we run this race. Why? Because our Heavenly Father is watching and working His favor upon us. It may feel painful in the moment, but He is giving you a heavenly golden ticket, you see. Can you see the beauty beyond the ugliness? Can you see the joy beyond the suffering? Can you see Christ and all He has done for you? Look to Christ and the fl your flame of love will be fanned. You will be strengthened. Learn from Him and you will be encouraged. And now look with me at the final portion of our passage, verses 12 to 14. What are we to make of this? Like the beginning of our passage, verses 12 to 14 starts with a conjunction, therefore. This denotes consequence and links the previous section of our, the previous section with our final portion. Consequently, therefore, that's what the author is describing. You see, because we are sons and daughters, we can rest. Not because we are no longer running, but because Christ is running for us. And not just for us, but ahead of us. So we are like children chasing our sibling in sheer joy and delight. You see, when we look to Him and when we learn from Him, we run not as those who are being twisted to run. We run not as those who are working, but we run as those who are enjoying in sheer delight, just like children run in McGlynn Hall after service, as we often see. 
You see how our situation has changed from running to resting. We're no longer working, but resting in the one who works for us. There's no more toil. There's only delight. We have here a glimpse of a heavenly vision. For we have been raised into heavenly places, seated with Christ, delighting in the Father's love. One might ask, but how does one reconcile this epistle command in verse 14 with Christ's response in the gospel reading? Verse 14 tells us to strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And in our gospel reading, Christ says, do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. How do we reconcile these two verses? What do we make of these seemingly opposing statements? My answer is simple. The gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 12. Christ came to his own and his own people did not Receive him. To this earth, Christ has brought division so that to this earth he might bring peace and holiness from heaven. There are countless examples of those who preach peace, but not Christ. But without Christ, there is no true and lasting peace. There's no real union with our Creator. There's no holiness. There is no wholeness. Before there is ever peace, there must be division. We learn this in Genesis, the Genesis creation account. Many times the word separate or consecrate is used in the Hebrew. The first 12 verses, it is used many times, I think as much as eight times. You see, God must separate light from darkness. Christ must separate if he is to unite and to make whole. Let's not, let not the cart get ahead of the horse. If we are to experience the peace of Christ, then we must experience the consecration of Christ. We must be divided from this world. We must be separate. You see... We were once paralyzed and weak, incapable of running this race, overwhelmed by its difficulty, but now we are in Christ. We look to Him, we learn from Him, and we enjoy everything in Him. He has given us purpose and power, peace and holiness. We once walked aimlessly, but now... We are making a beeline to where we must go. We know where we should go. Because He has strengthened us. We have been strengthened by God's trustworthy promises. We've been strengthened by the Son. And we've been strengthened through the power of the Holy Spirit by His saints that surround us. We once lived as competitors, but now we live as peacemakers with everyone and for holiness so that Christ may be seen. It's no longer about us. It's no longer about our tribe. We have moved from accommodation, you see, to communion. We've moved from chapter 11 to chapter 12. We have moved from running to resting. 
We've moved from the hall of faith to the stadium of faith. The covenant has been fulfilled in Christ. And Christ has joined together the faithful witnesses with the faithful contestants. We have moved from the many of God to the union of God. Such a sizable move from chapter 11 to chapter 12. Such a great move from Christ's incarnation to Christ's work and reward. And when we cross that heavenly threshold, we will experience another sizable move. But this time it will be more than a heavenly glimpse. It will be a heavenly consummation. We will no longer run this race as we do, now with pleasure and pain, with suffering and satisfaction. No, then we will not run at all, but we will rest. We will rest forever with all God's saints in complete adoration in the blessed union of the Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.